Section 7 of Lucretia Borgia by Ferdinand Gregorovius. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Emily Maynard. Book 1, Chapter 7, Lucretia's First Marriage. Alexander had a residence furnished for Lucretia close to the Vatican. It was a house which Cardinal Battista Zeno had built in 1483, and was known after his church as the Palace of Santa Maria in Portico. It was on the left side of the steps of St. Peter's, almost opposite the Palace of the Inquisition. The building of Bernini's colonnade has, however, changed the appearance of the neighborhood so that it is no longer recognizable. The youthful Lucretia held court in her own palace, which was under the management of her maid of honor and governess, Adriana Orsini. Alexander had induced this kinswoman of his to leave the Orsini Palace and to take up her abode with Lucretia in the Palace of Santa Maria in Portico, where we shall frequently see them and another woman who was only too close to the Pope. Vanozza remained in her own house in the regular quarter. Her husband had been made a commandant or captain of the Torre di Nona, of which Alexander shortly made him warden, a position of great trust, and Canale gave himself up eagerly to his important and profitable duties. From this time Vanozza and her children saw each other but little, although they were not completely separated. They continued to communicate with each other, but the mother profited only indirectly by the good fortune and greatness of her offspring. Vanozza never allowed herself, nor did Alexander permit her, to have any influence in the Vatican, and her name seldom appears in the records of the time. Donna Lucretia was now beginning to maintain the state of a great princess. She received the numerous connections of her house, as well as the friends and flatterers of the now all-powerful Borgia. Strange it is that the very man who, after the stormy period of her life, was to take her to a haven of rest, should appear there about the time of her betrothal to Sforza, and while the contract was being contested by Don Gasparo. Among the Italian princes, who at that period either sent ambassadors or came in person to Rome to render homage to the new pope, was the hereditary prince of Ferrara. In all Italy there was no other court so brilliant as that of Ercole d'Este and his spouse, Eleonora of Aragon, a daughter of King Ferdinand of Naples. She, however, died about this time, namely October eleventh, 1493. One of her children, Beatrice, had been married in December 1490 to Ludovico il Moro, the brilliant monster who was regent of Milan in place of his nephew Gian Galeazzo. Her other daughter, Isabella, one of the most beautiful and magnificent women of her day, was married in 1490, when she was only sixteen years of age, to the Marchese Francesco Gonzaga of Mantua. Alfonso was heir to the title, and on February 12, 1491, when he was only fifteen years old, he married Anna Sforza, a sister of the same John Galeazzo. In November 1492, his father sent him to Rome to recommend his state to the favor of the Pope, who received the youthful scion of the house of Sforza, into which his own daughter was to marry, with the highest honors. Don Alfonso lived in the Vatican, and during his visit, which lasted for several weeks, he not only had an opportunity, but it was his duty to call on Donna Lucretia. He was filled with amazement when he first beheld the beautiful child with her golden hair and intelligent blue eyes, and nothing was farther from his mind than the idea that the Sforza's betrothed would enter the castle of the Este family at Ferrara as his own wife nine years later. The letter of thanks which the prince's father wrote to the Pope shows how great were the honors with which the son had been received. The Duke says, 
most holy father and lord my honored master i kiss your holiness's feet and commend myself to you in all humility what honor and praise was due your holiness i have long known and now the letters of the bishop of modena my ambassador and also of others not alone those of my dearly beloved first-born alfonso but of all the members of his suite show how much i owe you they tell me how your highness included us all me and mind within the measure of your love and overwhelmed all with presence favors mercy and benevolence on my son's arrival in rome and during his stay there therefore i acknowledge that i have for a long time been indebted to your holiness and now am still more so on account of this my obligation is more than i can ever repay and i promise that my gratitude shall be eternal and measureless like the world as your most dutiful servant i shall always be ready to perform anything which may be acceptable to your holiness to which i recommend myself and mine in all humility your holiness's son and servant ercole duke of ferrara ferrara january third fourteen ninety three the letter shows how great was the duke's anxiety to remain on good terms with the pope he was a vassal in ferrara of the roman church which was endeavoring to transform itself into a monarchy the princes as well as the republicans of italy at least those whose possessions were close to the sphere of action of the holy see or were its vassals studied every new pope with suspicion and fear and also with curiosity to see in what direction nepotism would develop under him how easily alexander the sixth might have again taken up the plans of the house of borgia where they had been interrupted by the death of his uncle calixtus and have followed in the footsteps of sixtus the fourth moreover it was only ten years since the last named pope had in conjunction with venice waged war on ferrara ercole had maintained friendly relations with alexander the sixth when he was only a cardinal rodrigo borgia had even been godfather to his son alfonso when he was baptized for his other son ippolito the duke through his ambassador in rome john andrea boccaccio endeavored to secure a cardinal's cap the ambassador applied to the most influential of alexander's confidants ascanio sforza the chamberlain maratus and madonna adriana the pope desired to make his son caesar a cardinal and boccaccio hoped that the youthful ippolito would be his companion in good fortune the ambassador gave maratus to understand that the two young men one of whom was archbishop of valencia the other of gran would make a good pair Quote, their ages are about the same i believe that valencia is not more than sixteen years old while our strigonia gran is near that age maratus replied that this was not quite correct as ippolito was not yet fourteen and the archbishop of valencia was in his eighteenth year the youthful caesar was stirred by other desires than those for spiritual honors he assumed the hated garb of the priest only on his father's command although he was archbishop he had only the first tonsure his life was wholly worldly it was even said that the king of naples wanted him to marry one of his natural daughters and that if he did so he would relinquish the priesthood the ferrarese ambassador called upon him march seventeenth fourteen ninety three in his house in trastevere by which was probably meant the borgo the picture which boccaccio on this occasion gave duke ercole of this young man of seventeen years is an important and significant portrait and the first we have of him 
Quote, I met Caesar yesterday in the house in Trastevere. He was just on his way to the chase, dressed in a costume altogether worldly, that is, in silk, and armed. He had only a little tonsure, like a simple priest. I conversed with him for a while as we rode along. I am on intimate terms with him. He possesses marked genius and a charming personality. He bears himself like a great prince. He is especially lively and merry and fond of society. Being very modest, he presents a much better and more distinguished appearance than his brother, the Duke of Gandia, although the latter is also highly endowed. The archbishop never had any inclination for the priesthood. His benefices, however, bring him in more than sixteen thousand ducats annually. If the projected marriage takes place, his benefices will fall to another brother, Dufray, who is about thirteen years old. It will be seen that the ambassador specially mentioned Caesar's buoyant nature. This was one of Alexander's most characteristic traits, and both Caesar and Lucretia, who was noted for it later, had inherited it from him. So far as his prudence was concerned, it was proclaimed six years later by a no less distinguished man than Giuliano delle Rovere, who afterwards became Pope under the name of Julius II. The Duke of Gandia was in Rome at this time, but it was his intention to set out for Spain to see his spouse immediately after the celebration of the marriage of Sforza and Lucretia. Lucretia's wedding was to take place on St. George's Day, but was postponed as it was found impossible for the bridegroom to arrive in time. Alexander took the greatest pleasure in making the arrangements for setting up his daughter's establishment. Her happiness, or what to him was the same thing, her greatness meant much to him. He loved her passionately, superlatively, as the Ferrarese ambassador wrote his master. On the ambassador's suggestion, the Duke of Ferrara sent, as a wedding gift, a pair of large silver hand basins, with the accompanying vessels, all of the finest workmanship. Two residences were proposed for the young pair, the Palace of Santa Maria in Portico, and the one near the Castle of Sant'Angelo, which had belonged to the Cardinal Domenicus Porta of Aleria, who died February 4, 1493. The former, in which Lucretia was already living, was chosen. At last Sforza arrived. June ninth, he made his entry by way of the Porta del Popolo, and was received by the whole Senate, his brother-in-laws, and the ambassadors of the powers. Lucretia, attended by several maids of honor, had taken a position in a loggia of her palace to see her bridegroom and his suite on their way to the Vatican. As he rode by, Sforza greeted her right gallantly, and his bride returned his salutation. He was most graciously received by his father-in-law. Sforza was a man of attractive appearance, as we may readily discover from a medal which he had struck ten years later, which represents him with long flowing locks and a full beard. The mouth is sensitive, the underlip slightly drawn, the nose is somewhat aquiline, the forehead smooth and lofty. The proportions of his features are noble, but lacking in character. Three days after his arrival, that is June 12th, the nuptials were celebrated in the Vatican with ostentatious publicity. Alexander had invited the nobility, the officials of Rome, and the foreign ambassadors to be present. There was a banquet, followed by a licentious comedy, which is described by Infasura. To corroborate the short account given by this Roman, and at the same time to render the picture more complete, we reproduce word for word the description which the Ferrarese ambassador Boccaccio sent his master in a communication dated June 13th. Yesterday, the twelfth of the present month, the union was publicly celebrated in the palace, with the greatest pomp and extravagance. 
All the Roman matrons were invited, also the most influential citizens, and many cardinals, twelve in number, stood near her, the Pope occupying the throne in their midst. The palace and all the apartments were filled with people who were overcome with amazement. The Lord of Pesaro celebrated his betrothal to his wife, and the Bishop of Concordia delivered a sermon. The only ambassadors present, however, were the Venetian, the Milanese, and myself, and one from the King of France. Cardinal Ascanio thought that I ought to present the gift during the ceremony, so I had someone ask the Pope, to whom I remarked that I did not think it proper, and that it seemed better to me to wait a little while. All agreed with me, whereupon the Pope called to me and said, It seems to me to be best, as you say. Consequently, it was arranged that I should bring the present to the palace late in the evening. His Holiness gave a small dinner in honor of the bride and groom, and there were present the Cardinals Ascanio, Santa Anastasia, and Colonna. The bride and groom, and next to him the Count of Pitigliano, captain of the church, Giuliano Orsini, Madonna Giulia Farnese, of whom there is so much talk, de qua est tanta sermo, Madonna Teodorina and her daughter, the Marchese of Garazzo, a daughter of the above-named captain, wife of Angelo Farnese, Madonna Giulia's brother. Then came a younger brother of Cardinal Colonna and Madonna Adriana Ursina. The last is mother-in-law of the above-mentioned Madonna Giulia. She had the bride educated in her own home, where she was treated as a niece of the Pope. Adriana is the daughter of the Pope's cousin, Pedro de Mila, deceased, with whom Your Excellency was acquainted. When the table was cleared, which was between three and four o'clock in the morning, the bride was presented with a gift sent by the illustrious Duke of Milan. It consisted of five different pieces of gold brocade and two rings, a diamond and a ruby, the whole worth a thousand ducats. Thereupon I presented Your Highness's gift, with suitable words of congratulation on the marriage and good wishes for the future, together with the offer of your services. The present greatly pleased the Pope. To the thanks of the bride and groom he added his own expressions of unbounded gratitude. Then Ascanio offered his present, which consisted of a complete drinking service of silver washed with gold, worth about a thousand ducats. Cardinal Monreale gave two rings, a sapphire and a diamond, very beautiful, and worth three thousand ducats. The prothonotary Cesarini gave a bowl and a cup worth eight hundred ducats. The Duke of Gandia, a vessel, worth seventy ducats. The prothonotary Lunate, a vase of a certain composition like jasper, ornamented with silver, gilded, which was worth seventy to eighty ducats. These were all the gifts presented at this time. The other cardinals, ambassadors, etc., will bring their presents when the marriage is celebrated, and I will do whatever is necessary. It will, I think, be performed next Sunday, but this is not certain. In conclusion, the women danced, and as an interlude, a good comedy was given, with songs and music. The Pope and all the others were present. What shall I add? There would be no end to my letter. Thus we passed the whole night, and whether it was good or bad, Your Highness may decide. End of chapter 7